<laughs> All right. <laughs> well, uh, tonight we are going to be looking at, um, I'm, committing, I'm committing a lectionary sin, which is, uh, I'm actually using a text from last week, and it's not the gospel. We've been in John for several weeks now, and honestly, I just, I couldn't bring myself to do the John passage again, and uh, poor James, who had to read it tonight, can probably understand why, because it's a bit of a word salad, and it's hard to make sense of, and it felt like it was a little redundant from the last couple weeks, so that passage from last week that was the first Peter passage that was read in here is just one that has resonated a lot with me in the last couple years, and I just couldn't stop thinking about that passage this week, so uh, don't tell uh, the lectionary police, but we're, uh, we're jumping back one week and going into first Peter uh, for a week, and so uh, let, let's read that together, and then we uh, will talk a little bit about it. It says this, finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire to love life and to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who are evil. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord, Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Maintain a good conscience so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you uh, for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Like I said, uh, we, we jumped out of John this week, um, but I've been thinking about this passage a lot. It's come to mind a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, for me, it seems that if American Christianity had a collective mirror that we looked in every morning, this verse should probably be posted on it. Um, there's so much talk about what is happening with the church and the world. In fact, we just finished a great small group for, what, six weeks where we talked about this? We had some really great conversations in there uh, about American Christianity, right? Uh, is the church shrinking? Why is it shrinking? Why are less people believing? Why is there a rise in those who have no affiliation, or the nuns, uh, as they're called? Is there something that's different about the world now, or different about people today that is causing it? What's going on? And I really loved all those conversations that happened in that room, and what I loved about them is that, unlike a lot of those kind of conversations I've been a part of, uh, there's a lot of introspection in those questions, too. A lot of looking in the proverbial mirror, which I think is important. And I think this text in particular, for me, just stands as a bit of an indictment uh, into the way we often think about our faith and our relation, the way we relate our faith to those out there in the world who maybe don't share it. Uh, so I think we should maybe take some time to listen to it. Uh, first, I want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, we jumped out of the Gospel of John. We're in this book of First Peter now. It's this letter, and I want you to understand the setting of it. I won't go into too much detail, but this is a correspondence to Christians who are living in a culture that is hostile to their way of believing and practicing, right? Uh, they're living in a place where they are belittled and devalued and they suffered real consequences 
as a religious minority in this time and place. Uh, now, it doesn't appear, as far as we know, that they were actively, actively being like hunted down and martyred, like that happened in other times in history, so it hadn't reached that point yet. Um, but understand that there is actually real suffering and real injustice that comes along that they are experiencing because of them following the way. Um, and, understand, and when I say suffering, I mean like suffering, not like what we as American Christians call suffering, right? Um, it's not that they went to Starbucks and someone said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Um, it's not that they stopped letting you pray in Jesus' name in public schools. It's not being the butt of some mean comedian's jokes at the expense of Christians. Legitimate persecution, right? Uh, it was a culture in which you paid a meaningful price for your beliefs. To this group of Christians, to those experiencing this actual persecution, the letter says things like, again, have a tender heart and humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. Skip down a little further. But in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense. And that word there for the defense is apologia, where we get like apologetics from. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And if this is a word for those who are actually being persecuted in a real way, it is a word for us. I don't think that we can overemphasize the importance of the posture that is dictated in these teachings. Here we see the very important truth that we would all do well to remember. How we treat someone as followers of Jesus is in no way dictated by how well or how poorly they happen to treat us. Again, how we treat someone is in no way dictated by how well or how poorly they happen to treat us. Our posture towards our neighbor does not shift based on their feelings towards us. I always feel like I need to remind people um, of this truth while also reminding them I'm not talking about, you know, like staying in an abusive relationship or something like that, right? Um, if you are in an abusive relationship or you've experienced it, you know that the most loving and gracious and kind thing you can do is leave in that situation. We are talking about not mirroring, mirroring the abuse back to someone. We're talking about not becoming like those who mistreat us. We're talking about being something different in this world. Again, if you're in an abusive relationship, you should leave. It's the most loving thing to do, but we don't become that which abuses us. Ultimately, the followers of Christ are called to this strange alchemy of blessing. No matter what we are given, we turn it into blessing and give it back. Their curse becomes our kindness. Their impatience becomes our long-suffering. Their anger, our grace. Their offense, their offenses become our forgiveness. It's an alchemy of blessing. There is no other mode for spreading God's love in this world. The medium is the message. The means are the ends. God's, God's goodness cannot be learned at the end of a sword or with rulers across the knuckles. God's servant heart cannot be shared through power grabs. God became incarnate because the way we love here and now matters. The way we love here and now is what we believe to be true about God and each other. Even when our anger and our retaliation is totally warranted, 
Scripture reminds us that we take these things and we turn them to blessing. And that is no easy task. But we believe this to be true. This is why the writer can put with a straight face, if you suffer for doing right, you are blessed. If you suffer for doing right, you are blessed. Right? We need not fear or shy away from the consequences of love. Why? Because, as it says, we have sanctified in our hearts Christ as Lord. This means the center of who we are, our hearts, our lives, our priorities, are subject and ordered by, subject to and ordered by Jesus. What we call good, what he has called good. We love what he has said we should love. We call treasure what he calls treasure. And this will make us strange in the world. We are called to peculiarity. I can't say the word. We're called to be weird. And being that kind of weird has consequences, right? And that's why, again, if we are mistreated, good, but only if we are maligned for the grace and blessing and love. Sometimes we face consequences just for being jerks. That's not a good thing. But it leads me to what is one of the most striking parts of this passage and where I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about. Again, it says this, Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. There's a lot of assumptions behind that sentence. The big assumption in that sentence is that we will be obviously questionable to those outside of us. There'll be something about us that demands an answer. And not just questionable in general, most of us are in one way or another, but questionable for the hope that is in us. We will be so hopeful in a world that does not lend itself towards hope that will make no sense to people. And they will want to know what's going on with us. They will demand to know why we are so hopeful. How often do we get questioned because of that, really? I've never been questioned because of that personally, have you? How often could you say that this is how we have done evangelism? We are so gracious and so hopeful, people just knock on the door and want to know what's going on. That's definitely not how I was taught to share my faith. Um, I, now, I was taught to be defensive about my faith, but just not like this. I was taught to argue people into Jesus, to demonstrate to my neighbor how bad they were morally, how wrong they were in their thinking, and to correct it for their own sake. I was taught to manipulate conversations with the unchurched so that I could question them, right? Any of you guys take those kind of evangelism classes and stuff like I did? Some of you are nodding your head. I've probably told you this story before, but when I was in college, uh, some close friends of mine and I did one of these classes on our campus because it seemed like the good Christian thing to do, and they were teaching us how to convert people to Christ and how to change any conversation to make it about God. Like it was our job to go out there and really manipulate any conversation. We, we could be talking about anything. You're supposed to steer it towards God in some way. And I, I made the mistake of attending this class with a couple people that I was on an, in an improv troupe with who, whose whole life revolved around making each other laugh. And what they did was they told us that you should just find something in the sentence that you can turn and then make it about God. And then they broke us up into small groups and they didn't separate us from each other. And they said, let's start running scenarios. One of you just start a conversation about anything, and the other ones make it about Jesus. Well, you can't trust us with that kind of thing. We had a ball. 
because we would just try to make up a sentence that no one could ever twist, and then we would take turns twisting it, and we were just making ourselves, it was an improv game we were having a lot of fun with. Uh, we got some sideways glances uh, for all the laughing that was going on, uh, and, and that carried on way past that class. For about a week or two weeks, myself, and especially my friend TJ, um, every conversation we were in with each other or someone else, we would still be playing this game because we thought it was funny. And it finally reached its pinnacle, and we stopped when we were, we were at dinner with two other people, I think at TGI Fridays, because it, you know, it was the 90s. And, uh, and, uh, and someone had ordered soup, and the waitress came out and said, all right, here's, you know, here's the soup, and handed it to one of the people we were with, and said, now be careful, the soup is really hot, uh, you might get burned. And both TJ and I at the same time said, you know what else will burn? <laughs> and then both started laughing, and the waitress was confused, and the two people at the table were off-put because they didn't know what was going on, because we laughed for 10 minutes, because we both knew how to fill in that sentence to make it a conversation about heaven and hell. I was taught to go on the offensive, right? to question, to interrogate, not to live in such a way that people questioned me. I was taught to have no regard whatsoever uh, for, the th- uh, for the things that they were wrong about, right? I was, I was in attack mode. I was in, taught to be on offense, not to engage, not to wait to be asked. And certainly I wasn't taught a whole lot of gentleness and respect. Too much was on the line. I don't think it's an overstatement to say, in general, we as Christians have missed this whole point wildly. We are often highly questionable, just not for the right reasons. The questions people are asking about us are not, why are they so hopeful? Why are the Christians so gentle and so respectful in this world? And we don't seem to understand that. As I was thinking about this, I thought about the recent ad campaign that's been running everywhere. Uh, I believe the whole campaign is called He Gets Us. Uh, They took out an ad during the Super Bowl. There's Rumors of, there's talk of like almost a billion dollars being spent on this ad campaign that's trying to communicate some truths about Jesus to the world. I'm not sure if you've seen them or not. I've seen a few of them. I haven't seen them all. Uh, To be perfectly honest, they're really well made. Um, I mean, shoot, having grown up in the 80s and seeing what most religious video kind of content look like, I mean, they're out of this world good compared to that. Largely what they're saying I agree with. I haven't really heard anything in one of those ads that I was like deeply offended by theologically or anything like that. Um, Again, I largely agree with it. But I I find myself bothered by the premise of the entire thing, and not just that they might spend a billion dollars on it. That's a whole other thing. But to me, it's a misdiagnosis uh, of the issue that I think people are genuinely, through those commercials, I'm assuming they're genuine in their intent, People are genuinely trying to address an issue, and I think it's a misdiagnosis altogether. Because the premise of those commercials is that somehow Jesus needs to be defended. That Jesus needs to have his name cleared in some way or clarified. And I'll be honest, I I don't think he does. Um, I I know plenty of people that do not share my faith. And in fact, I don't know a single person that doesn't like Jesus. Even people that do not share my faith tradition, even people that are the nuns, I don't know anyone that doesn't respect Jesus. I'm sure, they are, I'm sure they're out there. I've never run into that person. Uh, 
I don't think Jesus needs to be defended, and not just in the larger sense that if God's God, God never needs our defense. But people on average, I think, tend to like Jesus. They may not think he is God, but they respect him. They believe he lived a good life. They think following him is not an altogether bad thing. Jesus does not have a huge PR problem himself. People just don't like those of us that claim Jesus and look nothing like him. Jesus doesn't need defending. Jesus needs imitating. We are the advertisement that no slick marketing campaign can ever out-talk and outshine. We're the problem, let's be honest. We're the ones that are considered questionable, not Jesus. We don't need a billion-dollar ad campaign to get Jesus a better reputation. We are Christ's living, breathing advertisement every day, for better or for worse. What we need is the largest, most powerful, and influential religious demographic in our culture to act like the one they claim to follow. We need to be questionably hopeful in a world that seems to be getting worse by the moment. We need to engage with those that don't understand us with gentleness and respect, always, full stop. Instead, we often are clamoring for political power. We're building enormous empty buildings for ourselves and our own glory. We spend a billion dollars on advertisements, you know, and that money could probably just be dropped from an airplane in most parts of the world and do more good. We are known, unfortunately, for being people who often even violently attack those we don't agree with and demean those that stand between us and what we want. The opposite of gentleness and respect. All of this is a way of saying that we have set aside something apart as Lord. It just might not be Jesus. We should listen carefully to the words here in First Peter. Because what we believe is how we behave towards one another. We believe in a word that becomes flesh. It looks like something. It acts like something in this world. If it's of Christ, then it looks like unity and sympathy and love of neighbor. If it looks like Christ, then it takes no other forms than tender hearts and humble minds. We are Christ's advertising campaign. So we should take note to make sure what exactly we are selling on a day-to-day -day basis by the way we live and treat each other. I guess the question is, will we be hopelessly questionable or questionably hopeful? Let's pray. God, we are, uh, we are thankful that you are a God who took flesh and blood and dwelt among us, that you are a God who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made yourself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant. We are so happy that you are a God that, claim, that came to serve and not be served, that you are a God of the servant's towel and not a God of the sword. That, Lord, you bled for your enemies instead of making them bleed for you. And God, we confess that we fail to follow you in those steps. That very often our hearts are hard. That we are narcissistic. That we are anything but humble. That we are not gentle with those we disagree with. We are not respectful of those who don't uh, look the way we do or act the way we want them to. 
that, God, we are questionable, but we are not questionable because of our hope. So, God, we confess that. We ask for your forgiveness when we fail to act like you while still claiming your name. But, God, we know you are a God of grace and of mercy, that your love for us, for us is not affected by our performance. So we have hope. God, may we continue to lean into it. May we act and treat each other in such a way that it warrants an explanation. Lord, we do love you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.